sincerity you? monster. Hi, I'm good. Maybe we should get this you. up. Nice to meet you. It's good to it's good to meet you. So great, sounding good, looking good. So thank you, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Uh, Luke, Absolutely. Thank you so much. So uh, tell me about why you wrote wrote this uh, new novel that just uh, just came out a few weeks ago, I believe. Yes. Um, wow. So I felt that it was a very important human story that needed to be shared. I think that there is a common uh, human struggle that many people go through. And uh, I'm a big believer in, in the power of stories and sharing them. And so I think that was really the impetus for uh, why I shared the story. It's it's a very difficult story. So I think that was even more of a drive to be able to sort of dig deep and really excavate a lot of lived experience and to share that in a vulnerable and open way that could maybe uh, open up a pathway for other people to relate um, who have possibly experienced similar uh, situations and then ultimately to uh, provide a, a vehicle to uh, share optimism so that for however difficult our lives may be, I think that we always have to hold on to the light at the end of the tunnel, if you will. Yeah. And so... How would you describe your book to someone you you met in an elevator? So your new book is called Dispelling the Myth. How would I describe it? I would say that it's very, uh, it's definitely for mature audiences. It's very controversial. It uh, tugs at a lot of life issues. It may make one uncomfortable but ultimately it provides a, a lot of insight and I think hope to overcome adversity and what often appears is insurmountable odds. Yeah, and so what, what got, <laughs> got you interested in Judaism in the first place? Oh, wow, so that's really a whole life story. I'm hitting 50 this year, God willing, and the first time that God came into my frame of reference, I was six years old, and some Jehovah Witnesses gave my uh, family, who I was living with, a kid's Bible. And so I read it, and I was very enchanted by this concept of heaven and peace and unity and God. And then my uh, father and his wife got into this uh, very religious Christian world. So I grew up having to read the Bible almost every day of my life for seven years. And uh, fortunately for me, I actually liked it. <laughs> but it really just became a, a real uh, core and foundation for me as a human being that has remained with me for life and that will. So I had some interesting teen years and then I became a mother very young and married very young. And around that time, I, I went back to what was familiar to me, which was Christianity. 
but it didn't feel right, if that makes sense. And so God always felt right. Faith always felt right. But trying to orient myself in a religious framework that sort of felt right for me became a very important goal when I was very young. So I also, though, began to, uh, so I was doing the Christian thing again when I was about 18 to 20, 19 to 20, and then I just couldn't do it anymore. I realized that fundamentally it was not a truth that I resonated with, though I very much like Jesus. And I, I love the idea of, you know, everybody has a different way of how they understand in effect the same truth. But um, anyway, I, I was doing a lot of uh, spiritual soul searching. I, I really became fascinated with a lot of uh, reading about Taoism and Buddhism and, uh, you know, uh, Native American spirituality. So I was really just taking in a lot of different world concepts. And then ultimately, Judaism just made sense uh, to me, mostly at a spiritual soul level, but also, um, I want to say, at a, on an intellectual level as well. And so I knew that this was what my soul uh, expression would best, uh, would be most compatible with. So you left a somewhat party lifestyle in Los Angeles. You moved to Sacramento. You moved next to a conservative synagogue, and you you embarked on a conversion to to Judaism. What were the things that surprised you initially as you start embarking on this journey to Judaism? Well, so I first started, uh, I made the commitment to become Jewish when I was 22, and so from the time that I made that determination to the time that I actually embarked on the path in Sacramento, there was seven years. So in those seven years, I did a lot of discovery and in that time was able to determine for me that I, I am a conservative person, uh, philosophically and politically, religiously. And a lot of that is also motivated from my childhood, which I was exposed to a lot of, um, I want to say, extremes. And uh, I, I became very averse I, to extremes. So that sort of like a continuum of my own growth as a human being. That aside, for seven years, I did a lot of uh, exploration into Judaism and was able to sift out that orthodox, uh, well, I love the teachings because I knew them like the back of my hand to the, not all the, the 613 rules that came later, but the actual Torah, uh, I knew that like the back of my hand, the actual, you know, doctrine and fundamentalism of it was something that I felt was a bit too much for me. And you know, by the same token, I also felt that the reform was a little not for me. So what I ended up determining is that the conservative movement would be the best avenue for me. Though, interestingly enough, I've always um, 
Well, I chose that path to enter into uh, Judaism. And also I chose that path because I knew that I would be able to become a citizen in Israel uh, as a conservative Jew through the Masorti movement. There were things that I didn't know um, that I didn't find out till after the fact. Yeah. And well, how long were you going to synagogue before married men started hitting on you? <laughs> um, that's a funny question. Um, I feel like maybe that just seems like a problem that might be endemic. <laughs> um, to maybe it's parcel and it's to men in general. There are good men and bad men, and and. Um, you know, I guess I've known my share of both. <laughs> right. But most people who don't know synagogue life well would be kind of surprised that a house of God married men are uh, hitting on you. Y you weren't surprised when that, that happened? Well, when I was young, I want to say I was. Maybe I'm responding from an older, jaded, been there, done that point of view. But yes, when I was young, I was very stunned by the fact that behavior that was uh, exhibited by people like I would expect that at a you know a rave or a club not at a synagogue <laughs> so yeah there were a lot of interesting um, discoveries along the way for sure now I know another beautiful convert to conservative Judaism and she told me that she was surprised that the Jewish men don't know their level she was surprised by all these you know, loser Jewish guys who are hitting on her while in, in non-Jewish life, you know, guys have a better better read for, for women who are appropriate for them or not. And so part of a kind of admired the confidence of these, these Jewish the losers. Yeah, the, the moxie. The yeah, the moxie yeah. that they, they were hitting on her. But a large part of her was just like, come on, don't you know that, you know, I'm way out of your league? So did you, did you experience that uh, Jewish chutzpah? Well, oh, wow. So if I'm being honest, and I think that's what you want, um, and I like to be that way anyway, I would say that, and this is a generalization, because I don't like to, it's a broad generalization, but in my experience, and we're looking now at almost 28 years of being in Jewish circles, I have found that Jewish men tend to be very chutzpahdik, and it largely is dependent upon how much money they have. Yeah. I don't know how else to say it. So I have, for whatever reason, I guess a lot of Jewish men with some degree of, you know, green um, have not ever really had uh, any, uh, like, they've been very glad to hit on me and just be dazzled or whatnot. <laughs> Another thing that I notice about Jews is that they tend to be much more open with their passions. So if they, what way? well, if they want sex, they're, they're much more, 
you know, obvious about it. If they want money, they're much more obvious about it. If they want fame, if they want honor, if they want attention, if they want to make you laugh, it just seems like Jews and Judaism both have much more sense of comfort with the natural passions. While from the, the Protestant upbringing that I had, it was much more about repressing your emotions because if you didn't, it, it might show that you didn't have a good relationship with Jesus. Very Victorian, very beautiful point. Okay, so backtracking again. So I spent like my entire social circle growing up, say for a, and growing up, but I mean, by growing up, I mean my 20s was Jewish Hollywood liberal types. And they are, I tell you, they, they're the wildest, the most liberal, the most, you know, I mean, yeah. They know how to throw. If you're into like a, a very hedonistic, secular lifestyle, you want to hang around with rich Hollywood Jews because they're the most decadent yeah. <laughs> and they have the most money. So, yeah, it's very true. So that's the kind of people I used to roll with. Now, I had a few more, you know, innocent type friends that, you know, in a, in a different way that I also were my friends. But when it came to my that was my party life. So that's who I hung out with in my 20s was a bunch of wild, decadent, liberal, ungodly Jews. <laughs> Did you ever encounter Bill Cosby? Thank God, no. Maybe someone like him, unfortunately, but thank God not him, no. And there's this horrifying story in the novel about someone spiking your drink and yes. you know, taking you out of state and, and raping you. Had that ever happened to you before? No, it did not. And that, you know, I, I appreciate the ease with which you uh, share that. And I also appreciate the fact that I'm able to really just talk about this stuff now. But uh, you ask, like, what kinds of things are shocking? And quite frankly, that, because you have to understand, I hung around a lot of party lifestyle, and I never was hurt. You know, I was around people that would serve, you know, <laughs> drugs on a silver platter, but they had your back, if that makes sense. So I don't want to say I'm naive. I'm certainly not now, but in my 20s, I guess I just hung around people that I knew, so I was never going to get hurt. So even though I was in largely very doing very, you know, not the most safe things and, you know, leading a very wayward life, as it were, I guess I was around people that were never going to hurt me. Yeah, and you so, were hanging out in Hollywood with, with party people, with people doing drugs, with, with very decadent people, but you had to convert to Judaism, go to Kiddush for the first time that you get raped. Yeah, and so you got to understand, yeah, I'm having a very wild life, never once got hurt, and here's the thing, you're hanging around with all these wild people and your friends, but nothing happened that you didn't want to happen and often i was just a person who used to just enjoy dancing and and you know being high so but i you know had a good time and i knew how to but it was like i never ever got hurt so i didn't have that frame of reference it's like you know this is why the tagline in my novel you just don't know until you know because you can really apply that to everything in life really but Unless you have an experience, 
it's kind of not in your field of reference. But once you have an experience, then you're aware of the possibility that it can happen again. And so before that experience happened, no, I and and I'm not exactly like foolhardy and just, you know, whatever. I I think that I just, yeah, it was really awful to think that you go to a shul and it, not not some, you know, decadent orgy Hollywood liberal rave, but a shul at like 12 o'clock in the afternoon in some kind of deadbeat city. Sacramento is not, you know, fast-paced LA. And you just agree to go have a glass of wine and then um, something really horrible happens to you. Yeah, it yeah. would not occur to most Hollywood people, even the most decadent, it would not occur to most pornographers, it would not occur to the most drug dealers, it would not occur to most pimps to put a mickey in a woman's drink and, and rape her. I mean, you, you had to go to shul to, to meet someone this incredibly creepy. And at the end, he tells you, you know, just just remember that you're you're nothing. You're, you're a shiksa. And I'm curious, did you encounter that attitude before with Jews that you met in Hollywood, for example? No, no. First of all, Hollywood Jews are so divorced from Judaism, they don't really care for them it's like they if they had to get you know bar mitzvah at 13 it was because they had it was a big party kind of thing so they were not very religious but with yes with that situation i feel like um i, I don't know it was really uh I'm almost 50 in a few months, so I would have to say that I've been through, been there, done that. And with that experience comes a lot of personal self-confidence, if that makes sense. Yes. But at 32, I don't know that I had that self-confidence. I might have been able to front it, if you will. But I, you know, like... Me hearing that, I really took that and felt bad about myself. And I was this outsider and didn't really fit in. And it really did play into my psychology 100% because I didn't have the, I, I had a lot of issues to still work out. And something like that only actually sent me over the edge. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you had to go to synagogue to meet someone who would rape you and then tell you that you're nothing because you're you're not jewish like no no hollywood jew would say that you had to meet a putatively religious jew, jew at a synagogue at a kiddish to be told that you have absolutely no value and no worth and no one's going to believe you is that fair yeah, and that there's a lot of dynamics as I understand it though. So there's the idea that you're dealing with a very brash, cruel, awful human being that also just feels that they can treat women like dirt and that they have money. And so I think that the ugliness of the human being transcends the fact that he is Jewish. I think that if he was not Jewish, he would still be that same ugly human being. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. 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 But uh, this, this. It's just unfortunate mm -hmm. that I, it, it's just a very unfortunate thing. But because this thing happened, it really deeply impacted my spiritual path. And uh, 
Yeah, it really, really deeply uh, marred and impacted my my path. How frequently did you encounter Jews who had the attitude that you were just a shiksa and that you had no no ultimate value? Was this the only that person? Was the fir- that was the first time. First of all, again, all through my 20s, uh, no. Um, most Jew, again, I hung around with a lot of party Jews. Most of them were fascinated. I was just even interested in Judaism because they really were not. <laughs> So they would, they were my friends, you know, so no, um, I'd never experienced that before personally, but ever since then I have, and it's always from religious Jews. Religious Jews are not always the nicest people. It's kind of interesting. You really are an outsider and uh, particularly with uh, there's, it's, it's a highly politicized and environment, I think uh, on par only with how horribly polarized uh, our country is and the world is at present, but it's just a very hyper-politicized environment. And so, yeah, ever since I decided to convert to Judaism, I always found myself in the um, Jewish genealogy game. Everyone's always trying to figure out what kind of Jew you are and if you're really a Jew without really saying it. And And eventually I got very put off by like, you know, if you're not, if you didn't convert Orthodox, you can't touch the wine because you contaminate it. Just, it's just, it got to be all a bit much for me, quite frankly. And and then you get to, to meet an Orthodox rabbi who I presume is your, your, your sponsoring Orthodox rabbi who holds all those strict views about kosher, but he doesn't hold strict views about eating you out. So I really uh, went through a phase of self-doubt because of this horrible thing that happened during my conservative conversion process, which made me be, you know, self-analyze and think that maybe I should have just gone orthodox. And so what I did was determine I'm going to convert orthodox. And I also said, I at least have to give it a try to know the difference. Maybe I was wrong about orthodoxy because that is a a remaining feature of my character is that I'm always willing to introspect and figure out if perhaps I'm wrong about something and maybe revisit a situation. Maybe I was too close-minded as it were. So because of that, I determined I'm going to convert Orthodox to find out whether it's true. Like, is Judaism true? I need to know. And it would just so happen that, uh, yes, so I met a very learned rabbi, but uh, lines were crossed. And um, I became involved with him and it was a very, uh, a very bad thing. So ultimately, I determined that I had to break off from that. And I went to Israel where I was going to continue my conversion in Israel. But ultimately, I, I think about three months before I was supposed to finalize the uh, conversion, I just canceled everything. Right. And uh, do, you, do you think that you were the first uh, woman going through a conversion under this particular rabbi who ends up going to bed with him? 
Of course. Yeah. And, you know, I, I felt very, it was all very illicit and guilty and confusing. And it was an incredibly complex situation for me. Um, spiritually and mentally and it also was very reminiscent of a very bad childhood that i grew up with so there was a lot of complex layers involved and uh yeah so it was personally like i just didn't like being so dubious and devious and it just wasn't the kind of person that i wanted to be but then so many things uh came about and i discovered that this is a pattern, not only with that individual, but it's even like a larger pattern. And it just became like, in other words, my, I'm very aware now of things that maybe at one time I was naive and innocent about. But uh, you, you told your truth. You, you told this story about what happened when you were converting to Orthodox Judaism and your yeah. the rabbi takes you to bed. You, you told other rabbis about this. But uh, I don't believe they ever disciplined this particular rabbi. He can keep uh, being being a predator. He can keep his position teaching Torah. He's still the, the holy man in the community while he's simultaneously taking women who are not his wife to bed. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, okay. So, yeah. So I told uh, two big rabbis and I told them the entire truth and abandoned the process. But what I believe happened is on the one hand, they limited him, but this is behind the scenes because of what they knew. On the other hand, uh, like in many instances when powerful men, we just, we protect them. We hide, we lie for them, we protect them. And so that he was able to continue to go about his business and do as he does. And then, of course, I just become some non-existent no one. And I've maintained contact with this person over the years, by the way. And, and um, I find, and I, including up to letting him know that I wrote this book. And he was not very happy about that at all. But <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can I can imagine. But uh, I mean, this rabbi is so ingenious that whatever restrictions they they put on he him, he knows I, how to talk his way out of it. Yeah. He'll just say, "Oh, she's crazy. She yeah. made it up." He's a very manipulative person. He's very intelligent, and he's very. I, you know him, so yes. I don't have to tell you what you don't know. And I don't hate him, and I let him know that, by the way. I don't hate you. I I really had to, for my own sake and soul growth and personal growth, really do a lot of intensive healing work in order for me to put all of these these things in perspective and be able to say, that's the past, and here's the present, and I don't have to carry my past into my present, but I also did have to reconcile it. And so part of reconciling it was writing this book. Um, again, he's very displeased with the book, but I let him know, you know, and I didn't need your permission to write my story. And um, he'll he'll get out of it because he knows how to just, oh, she's crazy. She, you know, he's just, 
he is who he is and I don't hate him, but it's part of the lived experience that I've had. And I thought it was important to share and not to disparage him, God forbid, but to tell a story about a truth. And that's what I said to him. I said, it's like the Bible. It says all the ugly parts. It's yeah. not a vanity. It's not a vanity project. And I think since you've taken the time to read it, you know that it's it doesn't paint the protagonist who is, as you know, <laughs> me. It doesn't paint me in a very nice light. It's it's not a vanity book. It's a story. And I really do think it's a powerful human story that says there's a lot going on in this world. And ultimately, you know, what do we do as people when we are faced with predicaments? How do we deal with them? How do we heal? What is God? What is religion? Like, if they're very complex issues that we grapple with as human beings. Yeah, and I've I've been uh, I've been pretty pretty unattractive in, in my dealings with women over the course of my life uh, for, for many years I was just uh, out of control sex and love addict and and I would just have this sense when, when I'd go to a party or a social event like which women I could get into bed without too much trouble like because I was always very lazy about it and so predators just have have a sense for prey and so they don't they don't choose the strong, powerful woman who's, you know, really well connected, they they choose someone who is vulnerable. And so the these rabbis, these men, were picking up on your vulnerability and reacting mm. reacting to it like a hyena to prey. Is that fair? That is one hundred percent very psychologically astute. So for example, if I was the woman I am today, eighteen years ago and before yeah. Yeah. But, but, you know, yeah. So I was very beautiful when I was younger and, but very vulnerable, very vulnerable, a lot of deep seated insecurities and you're right. And they can smell it a mile away and just pray. Now it's a whole different ball game, but absolutely 100%. Yeah, I mean, the only reason that I didn't go to bed with certain attractive women is that I just lo lost confidence at times, or I just didn't want the the aggravation or the complications that would would come with it. But otherwise, you know, my radar would just be be picking things up, and it was it was stronger than I was. I mean, I converted to Judaism to try to control my my sex sex life, my my sex urges, and and it just didn't work. It just you know started taking place in shul. Not not the actual sex, but the, the 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 whole the whole pickup scene. Now you there's a Orthodox outreach center that uh, sent you to Israel, and uh, there was a special conversion program there for women, which was ah, so nice of them. So t tell me about that that experience on the compound. So. You know, so it's, it's, you know, all human beings were all very complex, right? So yeah. on the one hand, you know, yes, I had issues and vulnerability and, you know, insecurities. But on the other hand, I, you know, worldly and street smart. And, you know, I hadn't really fully blossomed into the just strong, you know, badass I am today. Kidding. <laughs> um, 
so when I went there, I mean, I'm thinking I'm just going to go to this, you know, all women's conversion program and I'm okay with that. And that it's just going to be a really neat program of learning and growth and like a, a spiritual thing. And it was quite a nightmare. And I just, one thing about me, I am a fighter and a survivor and, uh, that's how I've been my whole life and that's how I'll always be. So I arrived on scene at a very out of order situation and I just, I couldn't deal with it. Um, it was like a, a just a, a, not even a compound. It was like just the middle of the hills. Um, some, I almost feel like put together, you know, metal pieces that you were supposed to call a room and, I mean, just the whole thing was so sorted and out of order and it was disheartening and, and I felt very hurt, uh, very hurt and pained for the other young ladies who, they were a lot younger than me. I was 32 at the time. They were like 20 to 23-ish in that range. And I felt very hurt for them that I, presumably they're there in good faith and just, you know, so innocent and seeking God and to have been dumped on this uh, situ in this situation and just completely preyed upon, I just felt really bad for them. So, yeah, that was a, a big shock and surprise. That was not at all what I anticipated or expected, and I was not happy with it at yeah, all. Yeah, it was and, it was billed as yeah. a conversion program for for women, but it was really a slave labor camp. Very much so. And it was very off-putting because you had these uh, young ladies in this very, this situation of squalor that was just not dignified for any human being, while the lady, um, you know, attractive lady, well-dressed, you know, had money. Clearly, it was her racket. It was a racket. And I don't know that, that, uh, you know, the person, the, the man at age who was very involved with He her, knew, um, he knew. I, I know that guy's gotten he, into he, other trouble. So, yeah, he knew. Has he had? Yeah. I haven't, yeah. I haven't spoken to him in, in years. I haven't had contact with him. So I really don't know what he's up to in recent times. And I haven't had a reason to try to dig and find out. But at the time, I was stunned, like, really? He's you know, putting his money here. Are you kidding me? And by the way, he was the first person who enlightened me about something. I was uh, wanting to go to Israel and he let me know you should do it here because you're not going to be able to get married in Israel as a conservative Jew. So he is the first person who enlightened me about that. And I didn't uh, like they don't give you that in the brochure at the Masorti movement, you know, and I'm a kind of person I like, I need to know all the facts because I'm fully, I'm willing to own my decisions, whatever they are, but based on facts. If you don't give me all the facts, how am I supposed to make an accurate decision? Now, had I known that in advance, you know, like I might've like, like it's, it's always like you have to really know all the facts. So they didn't tell me that. So when he told me that, well, I was already, you know, on the plane in Israel, basically. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, just, just a horrifying story. I mean, people have to read the, the book, Dispelling the Myth, to get more of the details. Now, you leave the compound and you go to go to a place where you meet a girl 
you call it Jessica, and she started out at age 14 as a babysitter for a rabbi with 11 kids. And and she starts a a sexual affair with this rabbi at age 14. And when it's discovered, he leaves, eventually he leaves his wife. He's ostracized from the, the community. He leaves Judaism. And she is just in a catatonic state. Do you know what yes. ever happened to her? I don't. It was really, so I was dealing with my own stress and yeah. overwhelm. And, you know, then I walk into this room and I don't know if you're familiar with like the absorption centers in Israel, but they're you know, I mean, it's not a tent. It's not the most, it's just, they're very, it is what it is. And so when I walk into the room and I quickly figure out how uh, really unstable she is, I just, I'm like beyond stressed out. And during the very brief time that we were like, you know, we passed and, you know, between me meeting her and walking into that really bad situation and getting into a different room, um, I just learned all the information that I did because that rabbi told me. And by the way, he's the one that told me, don't become orthodox. (laughs) He also was like, you don't want to do it. I'm telling you, it's, it's not good. So, and he's like, I was born Jewish. I'm, you know, like, like, yeah, I'll never forget. So I didn't ever know what happened to her. I just know that at that time she was a very young girl and I just saw that she was just completely confused, wrecked. She was a psych ward case. It was really sad. Yeah. The worst thing about being troubled is that you tend to attract other troubled people. And so there's this underlying theme of suicide, people on the verge of suicide all all through your book. And so you are struggling with your own psyche and with your own misery. And then as a result, you attract predators and people who are, who are prey. And, And that's, that's kind of the, the, the really unfortunate dynamic because I've experienced it myself. When I've been down, I attract down people. When I am losing at life, I I attract losers. When I am at my most distraught and and troubled, I primarily attract people who are distraught and troubled. And you keep coming across people who are on the verge of suicide, like uh, that young Jewish girl who fell in love with a Palestinian boy. Yeah, that was another really interesting story. So I, in the time that I was there, I really explored Israel um, through and through from, you know, culturally, politically, just every way. And, uh, you know, I've always loved Kabbalah, metaphysics. So I was very excited to go to uh, Sfat. And it was an incredibly enlightening experience because, you know, there's this whole mythos, if you will, about the mystical city. And I was a little bit jarred by my discovery of how absolutely mundane, you know, it was in part. But there was a beautiful uh, service on Shabbat, uh, Kabbalat Shabbat, that, that weekend. And anyway, we were all in this room. And yes, and you begin to learn about all these things of Israel, like, you know, the, the apartheid. And, you know, if I say that, I mean, there's a lot of people that don't want to hear that. But I lived there for 13 months. I know what I saw and experienced. And then you all of a sudden you understand things that you could never even conceive of until you learn it. But yes, like this young girl grows up in a Jewish home, falls in love with a Palestinian boy, they get pregnant, have the baby, but 
you know, there's so much animosity and hate that they're like a they're like a sad Romeo and Juliet tale. So there were very sad stories that were very eye-opening and profound that you discover, you know, in the 13 months that just, you know, wow, they really open your eyes. And for me, by the time I was six months into it, that's when I knew I'm done. You know, it's this is not the path for me. <laughs> and on Motsi Shabas, you encounter a, a Kalabakh group uh, seance where you know people are naked and I presume people are doing drugs. And that must have been quite an interesting experience in Jerusalem. Well, yeah, it's there's a lot of the juxtaposition of the holy and profane is a really profound thing. If your expectation is that you're in the holiest city in the world. And so the naivety that I brought with me to Israel was, oh, my God, I'm in the land of Israel, the promised land, the holiest city in the world. And. I guess in some ways that innocence didn't really connect the even remotest possibility that there's a lot of unholy things that are happening in Israel, particularly in Jerusalem where I live. And so for me to, you know, you're in the old city and you're, you know, there's a, you know, the Western Wall and there's all the beautiful things about Israel, but then you like you leave, you can leave a shul and, you know, or a service and then you mosey along the way. And yeah, you happen upon like some sort of, you know, sordid, decadent experience uh, that you would expect to have like back in the day, in the rave days in L.A., not, you know, in the holiest city in, in the world. Now, there's a movie that came out in 2018 called Untogether, and it sort of gives a self-serving presentation of rabbinic predation. So people can watch the movie and they can they can feel the, the false section of the narrative. But anyway, there's a an actress, fairly well-known actress, Lola Kirk, who essentially plays a version of you. What was that like for you to see... A, a distorted version of your story put up on the big screen? Well, here is the story with that. So I used to, at the time I was in LA, like I, I've always been a movie person my whole life. So I used to, um, you know, before movies come out, you can, you rate them, you review them and they're tested in like these private audiences. So I used to be on that racket and enjoyed it very much. And so it all happened very surreptitiously. I was just showing up one day at like what I didn't know was any, I had no idea what the material was going to be because that's part of how this works is, you know, the title of the movie and that's really it. It's all a very hush hush thing. So I didn't know anything about it. And when I showed up to this uh, event, it was uh, held at a private mansion in Beverly Hills. And, um, as the movie goes, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm like, and I'm a person who can uh, play things off really well. So, you know, no one else would have known what I was thinking when I was watching this, but I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? So I have, uh, the last time I physically saw uh, Wolfie was a long time ago. I want to say maybe 11 years ago. It's been a very long time. And 
I tried to make contact with him up until a certain point, um, very sporadically, but he was very cold to me. So I'm the type of person, you don't need to tell me twice to go away because I will. So, um, so there was a big gap between the last time I'd ever had any remote contact with him and me just surreptitiously happening upon this movie. And I was very stunned, like, why he would do that. Um, I wanted to know, so I actually contacted him, but he, he was not amenable to a discussion. Yeah. So I, I, dro I dropped it. But I, I wanted to know, like, why would you do this? And clearly, it's if you read my book, clearly his version is not exactly uh, the truth. But it's not. But it does pair my version enough that you can tell it's the same story. If that makes sense, you know, if that yes. makes sense. Yes. Yeah. If, if people people watch it, watch the movie and, and read the book, they can they can see the difference between the you know the Talmudic uh, story and the the reality under, underneath it. So, I mean, you essentially had an emotional affair with perhaps the most powerful and influential rabbi in America. What was that like? Well, you know, so when I met him, I, I was very taken with him. Um, but I think that there again, um, you know, I'm just one of, I was just one of many. <laughs> You know, like, like these guys, I mean, this is how they roll. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you're yes. just, you just think that you're just so special, but you're just, you're not that special. And in fact, I'm very much the kind of like, I'll, I'll go back to something that in fact, uh, Rabbi Bloom said to Mary, don't ever tell someone again that you're low maintenance because <laughs> you're not. So I'm a lot of work, I guess. And, um, yeah, I learned apparently that, yeah, like he being Wolfie would never have wanted to deal with that because I'm just a lot of work. And then anyway, though, over time, I realized myself like he and I could be not more ideologically opposed. I mean, just ideologically opposed. So it really if it hadn't if we would have never gotten anywhere. And I think it was all just really this sort of. um I feel like he's a magician, an illusionist, and he's really good at sort of like a, a hypnotist type thing where he can really fool people. And I think I just got drawn into that. I don't know how else to say it. Does that make sense? Yes. And uh, there, there are people. I was drawn this... into the mm -hmm. illusion, mm -hmm. Luke, and he's really like he's a he's an illusionist. So I was drawn into the illusion, and and really, and you know, I pride myself on being very insightful and just sort of seeing right through. But I was drawn into the illusion because he is very good at that. He's a mastermind at it. But and he, he's also gotten away with a bunch for years. But I think. What's happened with him is that over time, also people are knowing, and uh, he's not that innocent as I believe you know, and as I know. But yeah. that's how I look at it in hindsight: is that I was really sucked into that illusion, and yeah, yeah, I know a, a beautiful woman who got into an affair with with a leading cantor in Los Angeles, and she was just kind of amazed at the strings that he could pull. 
Like she became so frightened by this guy because he was so connected in, in Hollywood and it, it, with, with power brokers, you know, he, he could seemingly, you know, do anything. And she, she just became absolutely scared to death. So, I mean, when, when, yeah. when people have power and, and they feel like they can get away with it, they tend to try to get away with it. But one interesting point is that there are a lot of people who saw right through Wolpe and you also were given feedback that this is not a good man. But I didn't see through him then. Now I, I, it's different. Right, but, but people were telling time, you, was, people were telling yeah. you and you couldn't, and it you was, couldn't hear it. Yeah. And what was so bizarre, it wasn't just one person. And so I clearly was not paying attention to what I think is like, you know, God gives us signs and warnings and like, are you going to listen? And I clearly was not. Now, no one knew of my uh, friendship or, you know, emotional involvement with him. That was a very private thing. I didn't share that with anyone. But of course, for some reason, and, and I'm not the type to like, oh, I don't always tell people who I know or what I know. And I can be a little sneaky that way. So I... Uh, <laughs> So people would, for whatever reason, kind of like what you said with, I was attracting all these, like, you know, like the crazy girl or this or that, these situations. Well, same thing. Like I would kept attracting all these people that would just tell me about him. And I would be like, why are they telling me about him? You know? And so not one person ever said anything nice to me about him. Not one. Yeah. And there's another fascinating aspect to the story, and that is Jewish Journal columnist Danielle Barron, who a year before his divorce, like just enters his family, writes this glowing cover story, you know, praising the beauty and the, the grace of his wife and how wonderful this family is. She writes repeated stories on, on Rabbi Wolpe, you know, how, how mesmerizing he is. And uh, then after these stories come out, Rabbi Wolpe gets a divorce and starts dating uh, Danielle Barron. That's quite a, an interesting story. She's she's half his age, and she's about four inches, five inches taller than he is. So what's so bizarre about that is I how she entered my frame of reference literally in 2009, maybe about six months after I met him. And why? Because I was dating this guy, and... He picked up a Jewish journal he had at his house, and it was a very weird thing. And so that's the first time I heard about her, but I didn't know her or think about her ever again until I want to say uh, in 2011, when I uh, is when because I good at connecting dots. I just realized, ah, she's the girl from the Jewish journal. You know, when it, the last time I saw Wolpe, it was at an event at his shul. And I went, ah, that's the girl. Like I connected the dots. There again, I never really bothered with her because I didn't know her. Why would I care? But it wasn't again until a year, a year later when the person who did this horrible thing to me in Sacramento just like gave me all kinds of dirt like more than I put in the novel, but like they just told me a bunch of stuff. And I, that's how I found out a lot of stuff that I didn't know. And you had, and so, go ahead. Yeah. 
Oh, and so that's when I was like, oh, okay. And so that's when I found out all the things that you said. And essentially, it just seems like she be she fell. The way I understand it is she became obsessed and really fell in love with the guy and sort of has been hanging on to him like her all this time. And um, but somehow around the time of that movie thing, I, I guess she'd always been very aware of me, and I don't know why, because I really haven't had any connection with Wolfie for years. So I don't know how she would even have wind of me, except that he had to have told her. Well, how else? well, no, because you went to an event where he, he was either directing a panel or he, he was speaking, and his it was eyes... Abby, it was Abby, po you know, what's her name? I can't say Abby her last name. Yeah, it's his friend, yeah, but yeah. yeah, she had just come out with a book, so he was doing a panel. Now, I was in town because I was living in Sacramento at the time managing a tax office, but I came down to L.A. because Oren was the ambassador at the time, and they had a big to-do at the Hilton. And so I went to that, and then since I was in town and they were having this panel, um, I think it was the next day, I'm like, let me just go and check it out. So I went, and that's when... I saw, uh, I saw her and I went, ah, okay. So she, I said, there's something going on here. But I said, that's the girl from the Jewish Journal. And it wasn't until a year later when I was told more than I ever wanted to know about a bunch of stuff. And I just, not, most of the dots were filled in for me. But then I started to fill in a couple that were, I just like went, oh my God. So I became enlightened, if you will. Yeah, but at that oh. event where you last uh, saw Wolfie, he was looking at you and she yeah. followed his eyes and was just irresistibly drawn to get up from her seat, walked to the back to try to figure out, you know, who is, you know, Rabbi Wolpe staring at. Yeah, so she was, yeah, so she was doing her little notepad thing and, you know, yeah, fixated on the guy. And I'm a very, you know, situationally aware person. I'm just looking at everything. And she, she yeah, she literally got up, walked to the side, and she was just like looking at me and looking at him. And I went, okay, she's just trying to figure out what's going on. So maybe that was the point when I entered her field of you yes. know, frame of reference and ever since then she's trying to figure it out and i think there's not a lot to figure out because i didn't have a uh, a physical relationship with him uh there was a you know pseudo emotional relationship but it wasn't it, it really honestly it wasn't i i don't want to diminish it but i wasn't the only one yeah yeah if that makes sense. Yeah. And Although I don't know if he writes movies about other people he knows. <laughs> I Maybe I might be the only one for that, but which really disturbed me because why would you write a movie, like include me in this, you know, movie? And I, obviously it's his friends and they're connected and somehow he just decided to add that tidbit in. But it's like, why would you do that? That's weird. Well, to kind of spin, spin, a story that uh, could otherwise be be damaging and everyone wants to see themselves as a as a hero so he got to, especially him yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. and, and it, it's interesting like if you take 10 synagogues and they have the opportunity to to hire a rock star rabbi who will pack in the congregants who will get the synagogue enormous media attention and buzz 
but the, the downside is that this is, you know, a rabbi who's not a good person. I don't know, eight out of 10, nine out of 10 synagogues will hire the, the rock star is not a very good person. Because it's a business and yes. that's the part that's a turnoff. And that's yeah. the part where for me, I was able to say, you know, God and religion are very different things. And often they don't have anything to do with each other. Sometimes they do, but often they don't. And the thing too is, is just, you know, recognizing that there was a bizarre thread though, you know, because I didn't find out that all these bits and pieces. So I started out in Sacramento with actually solidifying a Jewish process that I had committed and vowed to do eight years prior to that. And then this horrible thing happened and it really just tainted my spiritual process. But then all these years and all these more experiences happen and unfold. And in some bizarre way, 10 years later, it all just like, like it was tied up and it all like all these people were connected. It was bizarre. I did. How did I know? So that's kind of a fascinating thing about the story. And this, the Sacramento synagogue, it prominently honors this rapist. And I, I guarantee you, you weren't the first, you know, they, they prominently honor a, a serial rapist who meets women at Kiddish and drops a Mickey in their, their drink, you know, hauls them off to another state, you know, rapes them re repeatedly. And this is the guy that they're honoring, and they're only going to take down his name, and they're only going to take down his plaques when they're absolutely forced to if there's, you know, an ungodly amount of media attention. Until then, they just want to keep his dirty money and uh, keep honoring a serial rapist. Well, Luke, that, that sounds true, but here's the other thing. I didn't uh, make this public. And I did file a restraining order on him, so there are public records, but like what I did was hide it under the carpet, you know, the, the sweeping under the carpet. So yes, I filed a restraining order and for six years, he was banned from that shul. Now, a year after this happened, I left. So there's no telling that he didn't go to the shul the whole time. But he was banned from that shul legally for six years under this restraining order. And then the other thing, Luke, is that um, uh, whenever he was no longer banned and he gave a lot of money to this synagogue, um, you know, and because of that, it's like a trade-off. I give you $3 million, you get a big plaque. That's how it works. So he not only got a plaque, but this like life-size portrait of him in this library. So that was very stunning to see, but they're going to all know now. But at that time, none of them knew, you know, and I'm not saying even that some of Tap's friends don't maybe know, like it, who knows who he told, but it, it was very, uh, like, it's not something that I made public. Yeah, because but you, you I, weren't the yeah. first person that he raped. I mean, this, I, I guarantee you, there are other people in Sacramento who were aware no, that this man's a serial rapist. Yeah, no, he's a sleaze bag. Um, you know, it's not my fault. I didn't beg for it. I, you know, I, it was 12 o'clock, one o'clock in the afternoon, sitting down, having a glass of wine. And, you know, like, no, it's not my fault. He's not a good human being. And yes, I, you, he's just not a good human being. 
you know, that's something he himself told me that, uh, so Wolfie's, <laughs> it's also bizarre, but Wolfie's ex-wife, her mom used to be his boyfriend. And as he told me, Wolfie's ex-wife can't stand him. She hated him. Yeah. So, you know, I, I just feel like, yeah, the guy has a lot of money and gave a lot of money to the shul. So he can, he's inoculated. He can do whatever he wants. And, you know, if I would have said something, woe is me, because then I would have probably been really discouraged. But I, for whatever reason, took it upon myself not to say anything. And a lot of that was me. You know, a lot of it was my upbringing. You know, I grew up in a kind of culture that it was a culture of, you know, like almost like the Omerta code, you know, you don't talk. And and then you also grow up in this culture where women, you, it, it's a lot of it was very cultural as well. So for me, it was best just to sweep it under the carpet and move on. And also the stigma of I'm a shiksa and I'm the outsider and I'm just bringing all this trouble to the shul. And so I didn't want to like put that spotlight on me, if that makes sense. Yeah. And had you seen Rabbi Wolpe prior to the first time you went into Sinai Temple? Because you had a sense that you'd, you'd seen or that you knew this guy the first time that you went to Sinai Temple. I don't, not to my conscious knowledge. Right. Not to my conscious knowledge. The first time I saw him physically is what I believe to be the first time. But interestingly enough, like when I was in Israel, um, uh, you know, like a lot of the circles and things I was doing there turned out to be big donors at his synagogue. And and then some lady I met who actually used to be Kirk Douglas's cook gave me a book that it turns out, uh, and it's like the proof of the book. It's the only one in existence, by the way. And I asked him to ask Kirk Douglas, who, you know, at the time was still alive to sign. And so there was a lot of weird coincidences. But to my, I mean, I was only at Sacramento for a year, just over like for 14 months. No, actually for just under 18 months before I left. So it was maybe 17 months in total before I left Sacramento and that I was at the Mosaic Law. So to he, I never saw him there. I know that much, but I don't think so. Like, where would I have seen him? Except that he did seem very familiar to me. That's what's odd. Probably TV. You've probably seen him on TV or the internet. You know what it is? It's because I used to work for some rich Jew in LA who was really into uh, Christopher Hitchens. And, yeah. uh, and so if I had to do work with this guy, then I knew about Sam Harris and then they did videos. That's what it is. That's yeah. why he seemed familiar. So I didn't ever personally meet him or see him, but it has to have been those videos or something. I don't know, because I couldn't like, where did I see him before? He wasn't, he obviously didn't stand out to me then, but I just remembered that has to be it. <laughs> yeah, Pe people are so complicated because Danielle Barron is best known for exposing all these predatory males, famous, powerful men who've hit on her in, in an uncouth way. But it would never occur to her to write about her own you know, predatory ways. Like it, we're all kind of attuned to see the predators in others, but we don't really want to face up to the predator in us. You know, I, I don't want uh, to, she's, you know, we all have 
to learn and grow in our lives. And I, I definitely, because of the fact that I discovered so many things and uh, learned that maybe she was a little bit interested in me in ways that I didn't understand, like why so, I began to dig into her as well. And listen, I, you know, we all have to heal and resolve things. And it seems like maybe she needs to do that as well. Yeah, I mean, she comes. I mean, she's from a, a beautiful a tr- young yeah. girl. I mean, yeah. she's getting older now, but she's yeah. a beautiful young girl, and you know, it seems she could really do a lot better than Wolby, to be quite frank. But I, you know, it's not my business. Number one, and number two is, uh, I think you know, she's probably got a lot of personal healing. Is from what I learned about her story, it's her behavior makes sense if you know about her story yeah i mean she comes from a broken home you come from a broken home i come from a broken home you know we're all broken people who attract other broken people and when broken until people... you heal until you yeah, heal until and you do the heal. work and yeah. and it's very hard by the way it's not easy it's very very hard but until you say I'm going to get this right because you know what? God gave me very limited time on earth. Even if God willing, we live to our 80s plus, that's not that much. So I need to get right with myself so that I can optimize my journey here on earth. And doing this is not the way I'm supposed to live. And so I, you know, I don't, again, I've never met her. It just seems like, you know, for some reason there's this, this connection, if you will, but not really, but you know, I mean, she is in my novel and I just, I wish her the best. And um, I think she just needs to heal and all her behavior with the men and the stories. And I think if you understand her story, you realize that that's what she needs to heal is whatever hurt she has in her past. And if you know her story, then it makes perfect sense why she's obsessed with Wolpe. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. also, we have a profound effect on, on other people. Like, even when yes. I was in ultra hunter mode, there'd be all sorts of, like, serious, uh, respect, respectful women who I would never hit on, who I'd never even dream of telling a dirty joke to. Like, because we all put out a, a vibe. We all put out a force field. And so some people put out the force field, you know, come take me. And other people put out the force field that uh, you better be on on your best behavior or I'm going to cut you loose right away. And so that's me now, which is why I never have a date. Yeah, I think I'm just terrify people. (laughs) They know, (laughs) like, you know, I'm not playing games. I'm a sweetheart, but I don't have time. And so I think I give that off in a way. I, I honestly, I wish I was this way my whole life, but you know, you, that's part of your trajectory, right. I guess, as you're learning and growing. But, but yeah, yeah. Now I, I, you know, yeah. Men don't play with me now. They're scared of me. Yeah. And what were the most important stepping stones in your recovery? Well, I, I had to really hit rock bottom. I mean, not only did I, I physically uh, crash, and a lot of that also was, you know, I was in the Army before and had sustained injuries and, and issues, and it just everything cascaded in a really bad way, and then I felt like I was spiraling from 2012, and it really is bizarre, but it was like I, I was not only spiraling mentally, but my body physically, and I became just very unwell, spirit, mind, and body, and uh, it was really awful, and then I feel like in 2019, it just climaxed in a way that 
is pretty profound. Um, I'm not sure I really want to go into that <laughs> right now. That's, maybe your, that's your next the, book. Your next book I is mean, on yeah, how you heal. Yeah, yeah. But it really, amen to that. But it really, it would say 2019 is when I said, okay. So I kind of started in 2016. What I can say is that in 2016, I, I, I have a pacemaker. I almost died in a car accident. And then I was profoundly ill. And in 2018, I started therapy to, to heal my body, not even my mind, just my body. I became very non-functional. But then as if things didn't go from bad to worse, they did. And so that's what 2019 was about. And at that point is when I said, you know, God wants me to be here for some reason Then I need to put in the work. And I want to say for 2019, and then it was, you know, the whole COVID thing, but I was doing the work spiritually, mentally. So for three years, and I just feel like my life is revolutionized and I'm just so profoundly grateful. And um, I, I just feel I'm a living testament. And that's why I wrote the book also to say that no matter what you go through in life, you can overcome if, as long as you have life, you know, I mean, if you don't have life, then it doesn't matter at all. But as long as you have life, you don't have to stay defeated by your circumstances. And I think that message is particularly um, powerful now because, you know, there's this real victim mentality mindset that sort of prevails. And I want people to feel empowered, like, you are not the bad things that happen to you. If they didn't kill you, they can truly make you a better human being. But you do have to heal. And so much of that pain we carry. I mean, I have grown kids. They're early 30s. And my older boy, he's got a lot to heal. So I relate to, I understand when people have that pain. But the other part of me says we also can't use it as an excuse to continue to be crappy people. Yeah. Okay, great. It's been really good to talk to you, Diana. Any any final words, anything you'd like to offer before we wind up the show? Well, look, I just want to say I'm really grateful to meet you. I'm really grateful for your time and for this opportunity. Thank you so, so much. It's been really delightful. And I'm very grateful that you really took the time to, you know, pour into my story. And I just... Thank you so much. Okay. Stay in touch. And yes. if you ever want to collab about yeah. the politics of the day, I'm all over that. I love okay, that. Okay. Great. Great. All okay. right. Be, Thank you. Be Thank well. you, Diana. Thank Take you care. for your time. You're okay. welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.